Alrighty, welcome everybody to another episode of the Tech Talk for Accountants show, and I'm your host, Andrew Lassis, with Tech for Accountants, IT specializing in the accounting industry. With us today, special guest from Avalara, we have Aran Sheaf, head of the Transfer Pricing Division, and Sean King, the president of Align Global Consulting. For more than 23 years, Sean's been consulting organizations ranging from emerging growth companies to one of the world's largest private equity firms with more than $40 billion under management. And Aran and Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. So, so we'll start up, up at the top on the screen with our, with our double trouble. Iran, why don't you give people a little background on you, maybe, maybe a minute or two, what got you to this point? And then Sean, we'll kick it over to you as well. Yeah, sounds good, Andrew. So, kind of like, uh, I, I started my career in the uh, in the Israeli tax authority, in the international tax and transfer pricing uh, department, and I then moved from there to to EY. Spent there like ten years, and uh, also relocated from the Tel Aviv office to the New York City office. So, I really had the chance to work with like small startups, mid-sized companies, and those multi, I don't know, big pharma, big tech companies, uh, all sides of it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had like a uh, small startup that they started about automating transfer pricing. And from here and there, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I joined Avalara. And basically what we were doing the last two years is building a, a real scalable, full ecology product on, on transfer pricing automation. Wonderful. And Sean, same to you. Give us a little bit on your background. Yeah, thanks for asking, Andrew. So I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. Hopefully the audience doesn't hold that against me, but uh, a lawyer by training started my career with a large global uh, law firm. And then uh, we were quickly sort of subsumed into big four world. And uh, I, I spent many years uh, both domestically and abroad in the international tax and global structuring practices um, in, in big four. And about 12 years ago, realized that there was a, a different way to provide these services in the marketplace. So uh, we launched Align Global Consulting um, again about 12 years ago to represent companies across the spectrum, as you mentioned, everything from early stage emerging growth companies to um, some of the largest global companies, but to do it in a way that's a little bit more custom tailored, a little less transactional in nature and a little bit more relational in nature. In a, in, a, in a framework that's, uh, in most cases, a little bit more palatable for clients. So as you said, that's all I've done for 23 years. And so you're focusing, it seems, on the sort of the specific custom tailor. And then, Iran, you had shared with me earlier, and I'd like if you could uh, dive in a little bit to it. You had said when you were working private in transfer pricing, you were sort of noticing trends of what a lot of maybe like an 80-20, 80% of your firms were were looking a certain kind of way and that kind of led you. You want to share about that? Yeah, sure. I think, it, by the way, it's something that exists in every tax area, right? Kind of like, you could call it the 80-20 rule that not everything that we do is like very unique and very special, but 80% of the work just for my own world was very repetitive, commonly used, usually those low-risk cycle transactions. The other 20, 25% were really like the more unique cases, the M&A, the restructuring, entering a new market, new court case, et cetera, et cetera. But again, 80% is very repetitive and, and going afterward. And basically, this is something that one of the drivers, what I, I thought about, like uh, automating this uh, 
transformizing documentation. Because if you think about it, also in work, doing the work, and again, no matter what tax area you are, there are like basically three steps, right? First of all, we gather data from our clients, right? Second thing, we do some kind of analysis, and then we provide some kind of deliverable, in opinion, report, documentation, that whatever. And and the thing, what, what I saw in those 80% repetitive, low-risk, common transactions, most of the time, I as a buy spend, and me and my deck, my team spend, was about gathering the data. Right, because the analysis is maybe very, very similar, the deliverable, no, it's in the end of the day, a template that needs to meet those requirements. So basically that, that was one of the main drivers why I, I thought about, about making this uh, uh, automate those, those type of things. And I think a lot of businesses, when they recognize that not every single thing, when you're taking on multiple clients that all sort of walk, talk, act, the same way you start seeing those commonalities between, you know, the first time you do it versus the hundredth time you do it of, all right, I've seen this same thing come up 80 different times. We have a systemized process for how we handle this copy paste and move forward. And just earlier today, I was, I was troubleshooting something on our website and I know ish how to do web dev things it's not my forte necessarily but i can follow along right and it took me maybe an hour and a half to solve something and and i was just thinking i was like if if anyone ever came to me with this again and you know, everything in it it's like it it only takes five seconds to actually fix it it's just knowing what those five seconds are in order to to get the the solution that you want, but seeing it over and over versus this was just my one off. And I was thinking, I was like, I should have just paid somebody like $50 and they would have popped in and fixed it. And I could have had time to myself this morning instead of banging my head against the wall. Yeah. But, but with stacks, also there's another way because there's, there's a risk element. So what if I won't do that? So what, how do I manage this risk? So, and I think it's, we, we, we are in the, essentially we are in the risk management business. It's a bit of it's a tax exposure, it's a tax risk. But I think also here it's like is everything should be automated? I don't know. It's like if you think about it about tags, right? We have like the cycle of tax is tax planning, and afterwards we have like uh, an execution and compliance, and eventually the cycle it's called reversal. Where we need tax audit with the tax authorities. So is everything automated? It's a, it's a question. I don't know, but it makes more sense. Like you said, like things that you know like are doing repetitive, so it makes more sense to do the compliance. And within the compliance, those eighty percent even makes more sense. What are we and use technology because they are also repetitive. But we have this tax with exposure uh, that we need to consider. And I think that also, and um, you know, like this is why sometimes it's also 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 good to see what I said the big picture, right? So how you can connect all those everything. It's not only this IT specific that you did in the email. It's not only the transfer pricing, but maybe connected to other other tax issues. I think there's room for both to coexist, right, Andrew? So you, you, know, you said, you know, we're on our side, we're a little bit more into the custom tailored type of solution, but we work with Arad and his team on a near daily basis. So, so how, how can that be the case? How, how can those two seemingly incongruent things coexist? There's room for both. So, so we take a very hands-on approach with our clients. We get dirty, we roll up the sleeves, we understand their, you know, their, their facts, their situations appreciating that everything is is nuanced and is different. We don't do any cookie cutter structuring solutions for our clients. 
But inherently, it's at some point in the process of representing that client, it does distill down to a compliance exercise. So if we build out a structure for a client and we're putting in an IP holding company somewhere or a, you know, a finance company somewhere within their organizational structure, at some point there's glue that needs to hold that structure together. How are we properly allocating income across borders from one entity or one jurisdiction to another? That's when transfer pricing comes in. And that's when Iran and his team's solution is so valuable for us, because at that point, that's when we can automate that part of the process, our benchmarking, our reporting, our documentation. And so there's room in the world for both of us to, to operate simultaneously, which is sort of the magic of the solution, because we can bring custom tailored solutions to our clients, but the component of that that can be automated, we work with Iran and his team to automate it. And then everybody's happy. We're happy because we can bring that solution to our client in a more streamlined manner. They're happy because they receive a deliverable that's really good, but they're probably not paying for it what they might have paid with some other providers. And we don't ever try to win work on cost or on pricing. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can deliver custom solutions in a price palatable manner, you're in, you're in pretty good shape in the marketplace. It also reminds me, Sean, like, like, you know what, like what you said before. So back then when I was in the tax authority, I remember a case when we are like auditing a transfer pricing report that one tax firm provided us. It was a very good transfer pricing report. I mean, I had no questions about it. However, because we were part of the international tax, basically we found other, other international tax issues. So we came, okay, we agree with the transfer pricing. However, all this basically, I, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but maybe it was the characterization of the nature of the transaction and suddenly it's, oh, it's subject to 30% withholding tax because that's the rule according to the tax treaty with this specific country and voila. So we are like, and again, I think what, I like the overview is like using the technology, using the right thing, but connected to the relevant and the right, and the right one. Yeah, and I think really at the end of the day for the clients, aside from what, everything that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the client really at the end of the day, as selfish as it is, you know, everyone's just sort of thinking like, what's in it for me? What's my benefit to having this done aside from, obviously you want it to be done correctly. You want it to be not insanely cost prohibitive, whatever the, the case may be. And, but a lot of people, you know, when they don't understand these concepts, it may come down to they're maybe just looking at price because it's something that they understand. But when you're able to deliver something at a higher level that's custom tailored and they get the feeling you understand me as opposed to I'm just another, you know, I'm just another client. When you can combine the two of them to have that custom approach yet still have the processes and systems in place where they need to be in place. I think that's sort of sweet spot for any organization. And I mean, that's, that's really what we strive to do on the IT side. It's like everybody has different systems, but there's also security compliance checks that we know here is how you can solve it by doing this, that, and the other every single time. However, in this situation, do it this way, this situation, do it that way, but you don't have to rediscover how to solve a problem that you're solving over and over for your clients. Yeah. I mean, a little bit, Andrew, you've absolutely nailed it. I mean, that's, that's something we see transfer pricing again. And, and again, we can be talking about automation 
across the tax industry, right? But but if we just look at, at transfer pricing again, it's a great example of that where it, we, we have conversations with clients sometimes and it's they view it as as an extension of their compliance obligation, right? They view it as something, well, if I'm if I'm a US multinational or a US entity and I'm filing 5471s or 5472s, I am reporting related party transactions. So in order to file those schedules comfortably, I need to have my transfer pricing documentation in place. That's very true. That's entirely correct. But sometimes in that framework, clients or prospective clients tend to look at it as just a sunk cost. It's just one more item of compliance that I need to meet. And what we try to do with our clients to say, yes, we're going to meet your compliance burden. We're going to provide you with the appropriate documentation to comply with your transfer pricing regulations and your documentation requirements. But in the course of doing that work, and in the course of working with Iran's team uh, to pull our documentation and our benchmarking analysis together, if we see anomalies in their fact pattern, if we see something where, to Iran's point earlier, you know, maybe we're, maybe we're inadvertently stepping into uh, a transaction that's triggering withholding tax, and if we reverse the form of compensation between the two related parties, still getting to the net same results of where you know net income is landing, but doing it perhaps in a slightly different way, now we're not an extension of compliance anymore. Now we're in planning, right? And now the client says, you know, this has really been a good exercise because what started out as this sunk cost extension of my compliance obligation has now turned into a tax planning opportunity to lower my effective rate, to be more efficient with my treasury management, to bleed less, perhaps, you know, withholding taxes or indirect taxes in different jurisdictions. So if done artfully and holistically, you can take for your client a what is seemingly a, just a compliance obligation and turn it into a planning opportunity. And I think if you do that, you end up with far better solutions for your clients. By the way, we see the tax planning in, um, in some cases, to some extent, in intrastate transactions. So, no, entities that have sent to different legal entities in certain states, and that's like, there's no compliance here, but it's like 100% tax planning. And again, how do you support this tax planning? One of the ways to support those tax planning is by, hey, I mean, the, the right documentation that basically tells the story and the tax planning or what, and the fact of the two entities. So, I was, and yeah, both ways, tax planning and also, and of course, also the compliance part of it. And understanding the facts and putting together the story that's going to be most advantageous for the business owner or the person that's in charge of that section, you know, it helps bring, it helps decommoditize what you're doing with not having to do the parts that are just sort of the mundane, everybody can do this, but brings in that level of consultation and just an example that we ran into uh, the other day with some of the marketing that we're doing and just I've I've just come to the conclusion that I have to hire 10 people for each marketing task and one of them will be good at what they're doing so in my most recent run of hiring 10 people one person he he charged like 10 times what everybody else was charging. And it was just a small scale project. So, I mean, 10 times only a couple hundred dollars, but I was still, I was still like, where do you get all? And he's like, well, 
because I'm this, that, and the other, da, 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 da. And, and I was just like, I'm just curious where you can be comfortable even throwing this out there when everyone else is bidding here. So I went with the best, best top person, right? And the value that he brought, because I mean, I just hired him for this one little task, but because of his knowledge of the entire scope and what each piece's implications were with the others, I had just been looking in the micro, I need this task completed because it needs to get completed and I don't want to do it. So going to hire a bunch of people to do it. And worst case scenario, I just get 10 X of this accomplished. And what he brought to the table though, and it's funny cause I don't even think he's delivered yet. Like everyone else, the other nine already delivered in like the first couple days. And I think I hired him like three weeks ago and he still hasn't delivered the thing that I hired him for. But the value that he brought, he was like, Hey, I noticed this technical error of your SEO, your domains are pointing in different directions. And I was like, yeah, I, I had noticed that before. I didn't know what the, how to solve it. It was going to be a whole thing. And he was like, oh no, 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 I've seen this before. Like this exact scenario, here is what you do to solve it. And my brain like exploded. And, and he was like, oh, when you hire someone that understands the big picture, not just on the micro implications of here, I need this box checked and you've been hired to check that box. But when you can bring the added value to, yes, we're checking this box. And as a result of our collective experience of doing this, I can help guide you and make recommendations and help you make decisions that are going to be advantageous to your organization as a whole. These are things when you're coming in and you know you start having these discussions you don't know what you don't know you wouldn't even have the thought that well what are here are some of the bigger implications of this when you're just coming and i'd imagine people usually when they're working with you and i mean you said that they come in from all different phases from early growth to like a an fba amazon company that's that's doing over a million and now they have to they have to look into transfer pricing and how all that works. But, you know, when you come in with the, a ton of experience and I see that smirk on your face, like, oh yeah, the FBA is over a million dollars. Yeah, I know that game. And so it's right, Edward, because look, look also like economically on the, on the landscape of, of those companies. Well, if let's say a decade plus ago, in order to be a multinational company, you would imagine that big companies with manufacturing facilities and logistic facilities in other countries, et cetera. That's true. But what happened in the last decade, Marcel, it's like, it's like a, a really like, the threshold is much more lower because I, I think they're like, you mentioned one, but there are two like really main factors that, that affected that. One is the e-course. Like you said, they're like, I, I don't know, like a research that I did, most of 25,000 FBA sellers worldwide that sell more than a million dollars a year. Half of them out of, out, are outside of the U.S., but all of them sell into the U.S. And you see a bigger and growing trend with those companies that they, in order to, I don't know, maximize their, their revenues and profits in the U.S., they establish a company in the U.S. It's an empty company, no employees, no office, nothing. They just funnel all the sales because uh, from the U.S. to this to this entity because they want to be accepted as all 
all credit on the US credit card, they want to have a US bank account, they want more the, the forex and expenses, but that's it. You are a multinational company, meaning that now you need to think about tax planning, you need to think about uh, how to optimize the tax and how to meet compliance. Uh, to, and to, that, that's it. Like it's like a big, a big company problem. Although you're a small company, the other trend is also that the the again the amount of the huge amounts of startups. Again, same here. Like smaller groups, an early stage company, and you know lots of them are foreign companies already established a U.S. entity very early stage in their life because they want to business in the, in the U.S. on different market or they want to secure, I would say maybe cheaper talent in whatever Eastern Europe or India. That's it. They are already multinational, and they need to they need to manage compliance. I would say, which is even more severe in in, in startups because the nature of the shareholder, right? You have uh, angel investors, VCs, founders, co-founders, employees. Everybody is looking to make sure that their investment is in the right place, and so compliance is an important important part of them. In addition, also they also structure targeted to like an exit strategy, right? IPO, maybe to be acquired by the neighboring company. Again, so the level of compliance that they need to do to maintain, I would say it's even higher than the average in other companies. Yet the common thing for those companies, they are not huge big companies for their lack of the resources. They don't have the deep pocket and they don't have even the personnel that can help them manage it. That's it, Aram. It's, I, I want to amplify that point because I, I think you're spot on. It's, I would argue that those emerging growth or earlier stage companies are at greater risk of transfer pricing audit or greater risk of incurring penalties uh, for, for failure to properly comply or meet appropriate documentation standards for the very reason you just articulated. I've worked with clients in the course of my career that literally have had 100 plus people in their tax department, and and it's 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 amazing. I mean, they look larger than 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 some of the clients I have themselves just in the tax department alone, right? And you look at some of these earlier stage companies, as you said, they don't have that bench, they don't have that bandwidth. A lot of times, they have a CFO who's sort of plays part time treasurer, part time controller, part time lawyer, and we've all seen that company. And in many respects, they're at greater risk because, and, and, I've, and I've spoken with agents of the service on this very topic, and they've shared with me candidly that, you know, the, the company, the behemoth organization, your Fortune 150 company that has 100 people sitting in its tax department, the service tends to think they probably have their ducks in a row in terms of transfer pricing compliance. They probably work with a a large global big four firm or very large global law firm, they probably have all their documentation in order. But it's the company that has sort of almost inadvertently stumbled into being a multinational. And, and maybe there are 15 people in the organization and they're engaging in e-commerce transactions across borders. Those are the ones that the service says they probably don't have their ducks in a row because they simply don't have the bandwidth to do so. So I would argue that they're kind of low-hanging fruit, that those companies are the ones that need to be even more buttoned up. And that's on just a day-to-day compliance basis. Yeah. But bigger than that is you know, most of those companies have an eye towards exit. There is, there's typically an exit component there. As you said around, you have, you have your different stakeholders in the game. Normally there's a five, six year runway before they flip it maybe to another group or you know a, a larger a company in the space comes in and acquires them. 
we do a lot of M&A work. We do, we do a lot buy side and sell side. And I will tell you that in the due diligence process, transfer pricing documentation is one of the biggest ticket items for a sophisticated buyer because it's, it's easy for them. It's an easy negotiation tactic. They come in their first round of due diligence questions. They ask about your transfer pricing documentation. The smaller target company says, well, we're not all that buttoned up there. And then counsel for the large buyer makes a mountain out of a molehill. They make that a giant deal because transfer pricing is inherently squishy, right? Reasonable minds can differ as to income allocation and just how much risk is creeping there. So now the big buyer's counsel comes along and says, well, we think we have creeping exposure, creeping risk, and they put some sort of quantification on it that is usually wildly uh, out of the ballpark, but they do it nonetheless as a negotiation tactic because now you get into discounted purchase price, escrowing some of the purchase price and so forth. So it's a common technique in M&A transactions to go after the smaller target that does not have its transfer pricing documentation in place. Very, very common. We see it all the time. And, that, and you see, like, it's that, it's also about the compliance, also like, uh, I would say the international and regulator, uh, regulatory and the, the, the tax, uh, the laws around the world, where you have all this OECD, tax initiative, PIDA1, PIDA2, basically those words, we're living in the, the, in the transparency edge. Everything is known. Everything is there. Tax authorities share tons of information all the time. There was this MLI thing that they can use the tax treaties. So it's about data at the end of the day. And if I know this one, you cannot hide anymore, right? So everything is out there. Everything is transparent. They're sharing information. So again, because trust advising that cross-border transaction, international transaction, it's also this other party. IRS maybe yes, no, but don't forget, there's also another country, another tax jurisdiction, and you cannot, I think you cannot bet that that was you that, hey, they won't see me. I think it's only a question of when. Because also the way they, they change information, it's like digital formats. It's not like a paper or something like that. Digital formats and you can run a very easy algorithm and say, okay, all the taxpayers in certain country that we've all been, I don't know where, ask for send with a tax pretty, uh, whatever. You can very easily kind of come across, okay, this one I want, I want to, I want to touch, I want to, I want, I want to exam. So it's all thing together. We have also from, from, the, from those type of companies, from their shareholders, there's the compliance, but also the inherent risk is much higher now because everybody knows about it. Yep. It's bilateral in nature. And it goes back to your comment earlier, Andrew, around having a holistic approach, right? And not just solving for the one item on your checklist in your example, but the guy who came in and looked at it from sort of a, a macro level. And that's rule number one, in my opinion, in effective and efficient counsel around transfer pricing, because as Aran said, it's bilateral in nature. If you just look at solving for the U.S. piece or the U.S. component, you haven't solved whether or not the Indian authorities are going to be happy or vice versa. I mean, a great example is India has safe harbor rules for transfer pricing. So if you meet these prescribed benchmarks in India for, you know, cost plus 10% or 15%, depending upon industry or the nature of the company, then you are deemed to be sort of blessed green light for Indian transfer pricing purposes. Well, the IRS doesn't necessarily love India's safe harbor because it's inherently one-sided, right? So if, if I'm just paying my Indian affiliate cost plus 15%, 
to meet the Indian safe harbor, the IRS might look at that and say, well, that's all well and good. You kept them happy, but we think you're overpaid. We think that should really be a cost plus 10% arrangement. We think you're overpaying to India solely to artificially meet their mandate around their safe harbor. So you have to be able to look at it holistically or at a macro level to provide appropriate counsel to your client. Because if you just solve for each jurisdiction in a vacuum, you are eventually going to run headfirst into a challenge from the tax authority on the other end of the transaction. Or short, or to pay double tax. That's also not a good solution. Okay, I'll pay. And, and those thresholds are, are around the 20%, cost 20%. And of course, all the other countries don't like it. So yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an issue how to, how, to, how to manage it. I mean, you don't necessarily need to meet those safe harbor. And I think that comes also, this is the exact thing of added value that I spoke before. It's about managing the risk. So where's my biggest exposure? Is it in India or is it in the US? And maybe that's, that will be the, the North Star of how should I manage this risk? If it's India, let's maybe do something for India and manage in a different way, US, whatever, or you must have risk. It's about risk management and making the, again, by seeing the whole, the, the, holistic, uh, the whole picture about it. So I'm just curious in that example where there's two conflicting policies that you should be keeping, keeping happy, how does one solve a problem like that? If one doesn't like what the other one does, but you need to be compliant in both areas, what are some strategies that you would implement to make them both happy? Good question. So hopefully you can find some sort of solution before you hit that brick wall, right? Then that's kind of where the art comes into transfer pricing as opposed to the science. You know, and Iran will tell you, I mean, his team, they have fantastic solution that gives us benchmarking and ranges of benchmarking that are deemed acceptable by the tax authorities in both jurisdictions. So hopefully if we have good benchmarking, we have good analysis, then we should be able to massage that so we reach a position that would be at least acceptable, maybe not ideal, but at least acceptable by both tax authorities simultaneously. So you hope that you can get there by properly utilizing the data and the benchmarking um, that you've received. If you do get to a point though where you hit that brick wall and you know nothing is giving and you know that you are going to have exposure, perhaps unfairly so, you can't get blood from a turnip, right? So to Iran's point, you know, double taxation, if you're if you're never going to keep both authorities happy simultaneously, and you know that you're going to run into that issue and you can't solve for it, then you have the competent authority process. And the competent authority process is a process that is treaty driven between the two countries on, on either end of the transaction. And you go in effectively and sort of lay your cards out for both tax authorities and say, listen, we're trying to keep you both happy. We can't. You figure it out. You two figure it out and come back to us, right? And that's a, a convoluted process, the competent authority process. It can also be a very time-consuming and very expensive process for clients. So again, that's really our last resort. We try to do everything we can between our benchmarking, between our counsel to keep the client from getting to that stage. But if we do get to a place where it's just an impasse, but then unfortunately that's the road that most clients would have to go down is the competent authority process. It's kind of like when my kids want ice cream, I say no, and my wife says yes, and then we have to reach a solution of my wife is always right to so get the ice cream. Yeah, you've nailed it. I know that very well. And, um, <laughs> and 
<laughs> typically in my case, in my household, I, I get the appeal, but I don't even know it's an appeal. So it's, I, it's presented to me as though it's the, the case of first impression, but, but, but we didn't really know that it, it was actually the appellate court and it was, I, I was the last one to know. So I, I appreciate that, Andrew. Very, very common. Yeah. Yeah. It's presented as a, as a fact with, uh, with skewed, skewed, uh, remembering how the conversation went, uh, with, with mom and in that situation. And then it's like, Oh, it's your guys's problem. I mean, I'm just, I'm just the four-year-old messenger that's just trying to score some ice cream. <laughs> so when, when you're working with clients, Sean, what is, what is sort of the initial starting point look like where you're looking at what they currently have in place and what's sort of the journey that you're taking them on to like that final, the final piece? It, it depends largely on, on where they are in their corporate life cycle, right? I mean, we, we might have a client that it's, they're making their first foray into a, a new jurisdiction. They've been solely domestic and for example, in the U S until now. Now they have an opportunity to engage in, in some sort of commerce in another jurisdiction. And so we start with, you know, do we need to form an entity in that other country? What will be the related party relationship between those two companies? And, and what are your treasury management needs? How do you want cash to flow? Where do you want cash to sit? Where will you have CapEx needs going forward to push your, your treasury demands? Do you have any credit facilities that you, know, you need to service debt? So. Those are the things we talk about with those companies that are sort of making that that new jump into another you know, cross-border transaction. Then we have other clients on the other end of the spectrum that they might already be in 30 countries, but they're looking to restructure or reorganize the way that they're doing something. Maybe they have cash trapped in a, juris a jurisdiction that has currency controls, right? Maybe we're talking about China or Brazil or, or Argentina or places where it's a little bit harder to extract cash from those jurisdictions back to the home office. So we talk about those sorts of things. Our goal at first is to talk about your day-to-day -day operations. We try to strip tax out of the conversation early on. We try, to, we try to talk about what do you need to run your business efficiently? And that is, in most cases, a treasury conversation. And so I spend as much time speaking with treasurers as I do with CFOs or, or VPs of tax, because that treasury management aspect of the representation is important as anything, because if you, if you don't have your cash managed properly to run or grow the business, then the tax becomes largely a moot point, right? So we, we try to not ever let the tax tail wag the operational dog. I think that's just a bad way to provide counsel. So we start with a, an operational conversation. Then from there, we layer over top tax considerations and tax posture. And then from there, as I mentioned earlier, that's when we get into things around transfer pricing because that inherently is the glue that holds it all together. And then we'll reach out to Iran and his team will pull them in. And then that's when their automation processes really help us deliver streamlined solutions for the client. So it, it's, it's sort of an evolutionary conversation that starts with what are you looking to do and how are you, let, how are you looking to get it accomplished all the way to here's a formal deliverable that satisfies your compliance obligations. So essentially, even though people may think that you would come in from looking at the tax area, it's, it's more from the treasury and what you're currently doing. And then we take those pieces to make it fit what we're trying to accomplish as opposed to just coming in guns blazing, like tax, 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 tax. It's what are we currently doing? 
and then making it work, which I mean, for any organization, but especially, you know, when you're the larger you get and the more pieces that are moving, it's difficult to just all of a sudden just, Hey, Sean said, we got to change this. So everybody in the organization now change and take it or leave it. You know, when, when you're smaller and you have like a handful of people, it's, I think it's easier to just, okay, Hey, we're going to change all this. Like in, in our organization with 15, I still get the, Hey, I have an idea, something shiny and then completely change shit. But I recognize that back in the, yeah, when we were smaller, three, four people where it was a lot easier to just say, Hey, you, we do it this way. Hey, you, we do this way. Hey, you, we do it this way. And now everybody's on the same page. But when you've got lots of people, lots of vendors, lots of customers, it's difficult to just pop in and say, you know, prescribe, this is how you solve this without getting the picture of here is how you've currently been doing things. And here's how we can sort of nudge it to where you need to be for compliance and for the best result, you know, that, that you're trying to get as far as the transfer pricing works. So it's, it's good, you know, coming in, looking at what's currently there. Cause I know when, when we first started and my brain on the cybersecurity side was everybody wants every single bell and whistle and everybody already knows how to do all of these technical things that I know how to do. So we're going to give you this, that, and the other, and now you're a happy customer. And then our customers were like, we don't, we're not happy at all. Like I want to click this and do that. And it's like, no, you know, you don't need AOL. Like here, I made you a Gmail, like just, just use that from now on. And they're like, well, I don't know how to use it. I don't like it. You've just added a bunch of extra steps. I don't understand what's going on. So finding that medium and you know, it forced us to take a step back. And when we looked at our security stack, where when we started, it was what has all of the bells and whistles, what is number one through our perspective, it really wasn't what the client was trying to accomplish, even though we are the experts, yada, yada, yada. If the client's not happy at the end of the day and your response is, well, tough, that's the way that it's supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. You, you also had the regulation perspective. This is their expectation. So it's a story today. It's about the data. That's it. It's about the facts and the data. And because of the transparency, this is what they want to see. You're saying that your entity in whatever, Cayman Island is the whatever, it's like, no, all the, all the profits out there show us why. We want to see the people that work there, which departments, who they report, who are their reportees, the amount of data that in tax, auto, in tax audits that taxpayers are required to provide in order to support their tax position, it's everything about it. It has nothing to do with tax. It's everything to do with their business and the facts. And that's that's the main story today. It's about the facts and the story and the facts that everybody knows. So you cannot like, say something which is not dif different because they know immediately yeah, because, again, the data comes from, from the other side. So it's 100% it's a story about facts and data. And again, this is, this is what the regulation, this is what the actual tax authorities are looking at and I mean, like really asking, like, it's like, it's finally becoming like an HR issue. I want the role description of the VP manager, VP sales in whatever in Indonesia. Are they really the ones that make the decisions or is it the management in other countries? These are the discussions that are happening today. And to, you have to take all those knowledge and all those data also to reflect it in the actual 
documentations that you provide. And the documentation can be transfer pricing report, it can be an intercompany agreement, it could be maybe the invoices that you even show for another. And because of this data sharing, I think the, 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 the holy grail is the full alignment between all those documents evident. The invoice should talk in the same language as the intercompany agreement of the same language as the transfer pricing report, as the same language of the tax return of the form that you now issuing whether in the US or whether local. That's right. I, and I, I say, I mean, my mantra these days is substance is the name of the game. Yeah. You know, long gone are the days of mailbox planning, like you said, around, you know, your, your Cayman company. I was in Grand Cayman a, a couple of months ago and, and in the city center by the post office, there's this entire wall that must have a thousand PO boxes on this wall. And you, you know, there are more, there are more PO boxes on that wall than people who live there. And you know what those are all about. Those are, those are a holdover or a vestige of that type of planning going back 20 some plus years. That doesn't work anymore. I hope most of those mailboxes or PO boxes are empty because that planning does not work anymore. We won't touch it for our clients. Uh, we won't, we won't recommend it. Substance is the name of the game. You have to have appropriate substance and you have to be able to prove it up. And as you said, around the paper trail and the story better hold together, right? Your, your intercompany agreement, your your loan agreements, your licensing agreements, you know, your, your invoices between related parties, all of that needs to hold together to tell your story. And I'll tell you, I mean, I even have, I, I have a client that has a, has a um, finance company within their organization in Luxembourg, and they received a request from the IRS to send pictures of the office. They literally wanted to see pictures of the office to see desks and chairs and people and you know, a break room and, and so forth. Um, it sounds, it sounds crazy, but that is the direction that the world is going in these days. I don't think it will be unusual to see, you know, drop-ins from IRS agents, uh, stationed abroad to, to go see what, what's really going on in this office in, in Zug, Switzerland. You know, I think, um, 60 minutes did a show on that. It was probably before its time about 10 years ago. Then they knocked on an office in, in Zug and, you know, the lights were on and there was nobody home for about 30 companies calling that building their, their home office. And that long created, you know, BEPS and Pillar One and ATED and all these things. But I think that's, uh, well, I know that that's the direction that global tax authorities are going in around, around the globe. And, and that's, that's, that's incredible. We actually had something like that happen with a, a credit card processing company where they had the person come in and make sure because apparently remote tech support in the world is just the craziest thing to give credit card processing for, but different story, but we had to have someone come into our office and see that it was real to prove that it's like, yeah, that's, this is, you know, look at our address, but you know, that's, you know, but the, that's part of the due diligence process and you know enough people have not done it the correct way that you know that is a fair step to take in order to make sure that everything is substantial as you were pointing to and i think that's a great spot for us to leave off i want to be conscious of both of your time thank you so much for being on the show and um where can people go online to find more of, of each of you we'll start with you Iran. Yeah, it's very easy. Like, first of all, my LinkedIn, um, I'm always responsible there. But I'm a transfer pricing, just like Google it and you will find it. And, and you, Sean King, not the quarterback? Yes, that's right. Not the quarterback. Uh, you know, so Sean King, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. 
And again, the firm is Align Global Consulting. You can go to our website at alignglobalconsulting.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks guys for being on the show. I know I took away a ton. And if y'all enjoyed the episode, be sure to like and share. And Ron and Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Have a great day. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Great to be with you.